Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. It's doing it for Bartolo. My name is June Lee. I'm really excited for the guests on the show this week. Uh, we have Gordon Eads, who is the Red Sox team historian, and he's also the media strategy coordinator for Fenway Sports Groups. Uh, if you don't know, Gordon was a Red Sox beat writer for many, many years, working for the Boston Globe and ESPN Boston. And he's covered a variety of sports for a variety of newspapers in and out of the Boston market uh, before then, too. And he's he, he had a really great, great journalism career and is now working for the Red Sox, the team he grew up rooting for uh, growing up in Massachusetts. And so he's kind of moved on to this interesting phase in his career. And, and we talked a lot about that uh, on the show. Uh, and I don't really want to uh, spoil the conversation, but Gordon's, Gordon's one of my favorite people in the media industry. He's Someone who I've been lucky enough to call a mentor, and he's just a really great, uh, insightful person just when he's talking about the media. And uh, Gordon's probably one of the the older guys that we've had on the show, but uh, he has a lot of perspective on the journalism industry and and really kind of appreciates uh, where the media industry is going as well. And so we had a, a pretty insightful, entertaining conversation. So I'm excited for you guys to hear what we talked about. Uh, So... Without further ado, this is Gordon Eads of the Boston Red Sox. So on the show today, we have Gordon Eads, who uh, who now works for the Boston Red Sox, and that's going to take some time to getting used to. Um, <laughs> how, how, how are things going, Gordon? Very well. Uh, it's You know, it's funny, June. I thought that um, uh, it would be a very difficult transition after 35 years as a reporter. But, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe 35 years of being a hack was enough for me. Um, <laughs> And, and uh, you know, if, if I had had to totally divorce myself from writing, I think it would have been a much more difficult transition. But I'm trying uh, to incorporate uh, a fair amount of writing uh, into this job. And, you know, I've, I've got a blog now, uh, GordonEats.com. Uh, good luck finding it. Um, <laughs> it. It is on the RedSox.com page, but it's a little tough to find. But uh, uh, it's out there. And... Um, I'm, I'm doing some work for Nesson and, and writing the weekly uh, newsletter that goes out to uh, uh, people in the Sox database. So, so I'm keeping my hand in it so that that helps. Is, is the role kind of what you make of it? Because it, like it, it seems like it's a kind of a flexible role for, for you to do what you want to do. Yeah, you know, uh, that's a good observation. I mean, when I was hired as Red Sox historian, and, and let's not forget the the, the mouthful that's part of my um, job title, strategic communications advisor uh, <laughs> for Fenway Sports. Um, you know, nobody gave me a uh, uh, a, a program or, or or an itinerary and said this is this is what you do as part of the job. It's it's really uh, kind of what I make of it. I mean, my predecessor in the job, the late Dick Bresciani, uh, was a longtime uh, Red Sox publicist, and then became historian. Um, I mean, I can't compete with his 
43 years of institutional memory, obviously. Uh, Brush was a beloved character around here. Uh, but what I can do is bring my own skill set in, in, which is writing and reporting and, and doing some TV work and podcast work, um, and maybe tell stories and, and maybe increase um, the uh, repertoire of, of material that we have uh, about the Red Sox and, and Red Sox history. I mean, for example, uh, a couple of things that I've enjoyed doing already uh, in this new gig during spring training, I, I got to sit down with Louis Tian for an hour and, and talk about his visit to Cuba. Uh, when you know when he when the Rays went down to play the Cuban national team, Tian was invited by Major League Baseball uh, to be a representative. Of course, uh, Louis was Cuban born, and actually it was 46 years before he, he got back to the island. Um, and he wound up throwing out the first pitch and all that. And and uh, you know maybe if I was still at ESPN, uh, you know they probably might have discouraged doing that story at, at any length saying, you know, nice little story, but it's probably not going to get many hits, that kind of thing. But in this position, Hey, you know, I get to write about what I, what I'm interested in and what I like to write about. And, and, uh, got to listen to Louie talk, describe how he, he introduced himself to the president and, and was taken aback when, when Obama replied, what's happening, man. <laughs> Louie didn't quite know what to say. <laughs> Wasn't expecting uh, quite that presidential uh, inquiry. I mean, how has uh, how has kind of your vantage point changed since you you've taken this job? Because obviously, you're now working for the team, and you're working for John Henry and Tom Warner. Um, how has your kind of view of the team changed since uh, since all of this has started over the over this last uh, couple of months? Well, you know, I've only been in the job since mid-November, but but one thing I've I've already uh, gotten a sense of is is uh, how much work and and how many people it takes uh, to run a major league baseball franchise. Uh, I mean, you know, things like uh, uh, winter weekend down in Foxwoods, for example. I mean, it it, it, it required the efforts of scores of of, of people here. And, 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 and the great thing is the one thing that I've appreciated, uh, in being here is, is, uh, it, it seems like the Red Sox encourage their people to, you know, not think in the narrow lanes of their jobs. And, and if, if they have ideas, uh, that go beyond the, the scope of what their job title might be, that's fine. And if you have a good idea, I, I think they, they often embrace it and, and say, go for it. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I know there's, there's a couple of projects uh, that I'm already involved in that I didn't expect to be. Uh, you know, one is, is maybe developing a, a, a children's book with, with uh, uh, the gentleman who is Wally the Green Monster uh, and, and maybe using Wally as a vehicle to... Uh, tell some Red Sox history to to early readers and all. Um, that's certainly uh, far removed from uh, sitting up in the press box. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Fifteen minutes from deadline, banging out a story. Uh, you know things like that. Uh, you know, I've gotten to uh, I've gotten a sense. Uh, obviously, June. You know, my, my opinions no longer can be as freely rendered as as they were when I when I was a uh, reporter in in terms of 
of the team's performance, et cetera. I, I'm very conscious of the fact now that anything I say will be viewed through the prism of, of working for the club. And, and so um, that necessarily in, entails a bit of self-censorship. Uh, I mean, you're not going to see me weigh in on the third base controversy, for example. Or if I do, it's going to be more in the historical context. I did a blog uh, entry about uh, George Scott, uh, the Red Sox gold glove winning first baseman. In fact, he won eight gold gloves, uh, but whose weight problems uh, dogged him throughout his career. And, and the way um, he was treated uh, by management and fans and what relevance that might have to the to the current situation involving Pablo Sandoval. So, so it's more in that historical prism rather than, you know, me coming off the top rope and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, weighing in, uh, with, uh, with, uh, uh, appointed opinion. So, so yeah, that, that necessarily has, has changed things. And, and, and clearly, uh, one of the reasons, um, I was hired, I believe is to, uh, because presumably I have some sense of, of, of the way the media operates here in Boston and, and the way they may think that uh, if, if I can advise uh, ownership and, and top management and how to navigate uh, some of the storms that arise, uh, all the better. So obviously there's there's been a bunch of storms that have have arisen in the uh, in the early part of the season, especially with like the Sandoval situation. Um, kind of talking from a more general perspective, how how does your kind of role influence how the team handles that? Well, first of all, uh, in in Dave Dombrowski, they probably have uh, the, we have the Red Sox have a a baseball executive who probably uh, needs very little help in navigating. Uh, on-field controversy. Uh, if if you've noticed, uh, I, I think it, it, it's fair to say that Dave has been very forthcoming, has been very accessible, uh, makes himself available to media, answers questions, and all. So, uh, you know, have I made a couple of suggestions to Dave regarding the Sandoval situation? Of course. Does does he really require my help? Of course not. So. Uh, uh, you know that that said, uh, uh, you know I've also uh, discussed uh, things like that with with the ownership as well, and and so so maybe uh, I can offer some insight into you know what might be the best way uh, to be open about such controversies and and. Uh, uh, be as forthright as possible and and yet you know be cognizant of of your own self our own self-interest too so so yeah that's a that's a different role than than being a reporter to be sure has it been difficult for you to to transition into that role where you're not you're no longer giving commentary on the team and and talking about your opinion and obviously you're from the boston area so um, I, I assume you grew up a big Red Sox fan, and that's kind of having a strong opinion on the Red Sox is something that's kind of inherent within <laughs> the New England spirit. Yes, and no doubt. And and uh, you know the the one thing that has struck me, June, in in this new role is, you know, as a reporter, even though I've always been on a quote staff, you know, whether it was at ESPN.com, ESPN Boston, the, the Globe, 
uh, previous news organizations that I worked for. You know, when when you're a baseball writer, in particular, I think you're you're kind of an independent contractor. You know, you're uh, you rarely go in the office. Uh, the people that you work with generally are not your your coworkers, but but your competitors. Uh, you know, I'm out there sitting besides a guy from the Boston Herald and the Globe and and Comcast and and uh, uh, you know we're we're all Providence we're in MLB.com and we're all competing with each other and and one thing that I I kind of struck me in my new role is that I'm now kind of, uh, part of a collaborative effort and and uh, there's a there's a larger group here that even the people on my floor and all that 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 I care about and and enjoy working with and enjoy being a part of something greater than myself. Have you, have you enjoyed that, that transition, not having to, to compete with, you know, with your friends and coworkers at, at, you know, in the clubhouse and in the press box? Damn straight, brother. Uh, you know, particularly <laughs> given the 24 seven nature, uh, of our business now, um, you know, I think that's changed everything. And, and sometimes I wonder if, if the things that that uh, I considered my strength, for example, being able to write a good game story, you know, do those things matter as much anymore in in today's environment? And I suspect the answer is no. Um, and and you know, I that's one of my concerns about the business is like you go to any website now, whether it's a Globe or ESPN or or Bleacher Report or whatever, everybody's front page is now uh, dominated by video. Uh, is that the way news now is primarily being disseminated, is, is, is watching the video reports of something? And, and, you know, the funny thing is I, I still, and maybe this betrays my, my age and my orientation, but I would much rather read what someone has to say uh, about something, then then watch a video about it. But that doesn't seem to be the way uh, the business is trending. And you know, I mean, the the this whole uh, Twitter scoop first. You know, the, the the idea of being first with a story, and 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 feeling some satisfaction about having a story. You know, two minutes or three minutes or five minutes ahead of somebody else. I. I don't get it. I, you know, I, I mean, to me, in in some ways, that seems really uh, wasted effort. Uh, you know, it. Once upon a time, a scoop really meant something. If if you got a story, uh, you know, nobody would see it until the next morning, and, and and they wouldn't have an opportunity to catch up until the next day. I mean, you there there it was. You had this story. And and now you know you have a story for what thirty seconds, a couple minutes, ten minutes. I uh, uh, I don't know. And 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 you know I I wonder. I often wonder who cares about. Uh, do the do the readers really care that that uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, who is an unbelievable reporter, uh, broke something five minutes before ESPN? I, I'm not sure. Maybe you know. Maybe judging by his following. Uh, uh, they absolutely care, you know, that, that, that he's the go-to guy for, for NBA news. But, uh, uh, I, 
and the other trend that, and I know I'm roaming a little far afield from your question here, June, but you know the other thing I wonder about is is the the um, the, the the tremendous uh, uh, growth of aggregate sites. You know, if if everybody's just aggregating stuff, who's going to be doing the original reporting? That's what I wonder. Well, I think there's a there's a balance there because you know even though the value of a scoop has kind of been minimized within the 24-hour news cycle. I also think that it's much more beneficial to the audience and that you just have a wealth you just have a wealth of information now and you have so many different places to get great writing whereas back in the old days, you know, you had the traditional outlets like the Globe and the Herald and, the, and all the newspapers whereas now you have people coming in with original thoughts on blogs and Twitter and and providing entertainment in different ways and obviously there's kind of a balance there. Um, how much does a scoop really matter now? But I think the the balance and the value towards things has changed towards kind of just good information. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of that is kind of siphoned out through the through a lot of the trash that's on the internet as a whole. You know, I can tell you, June, that when uh, when I started my career as as a sports writer, uh, my first beat job was in. LA uh, for the times in, in 1980, I covered the LA Kings. That was my first gig. And, and fortunately I was working for a sports editor who was originally from Arkansas. So he didn't know a hockey puck from a Buffalo chip. So, uh, I was able to make mistakes on the beat that probably, uh, a more sophisticated audience, hockey audience like here in Boston wouldn't have tolerated, but it was a, it was a great first, uh, uh, first beat for me. Um, I remember uh, going to the, there used to be some great out-of-town newsstands in, in Los Angeles, you know, 24-hour newsstands, and you could, you could go and pick up the, the Sunday papers from, from around the country. And, and I remember how uh, eager I was to get the Boston Globe, uh, the Sunday Boston Globe. And it usually was two, three, four days uh, after uh, published. Uh, and so do you think that I don't, enjoy having the opportunity to to read instantly all of my favorite writers around the country uh no it's fantastic it's unbelievable and and in some ways um you know in, in some ways i think it rewards good writing um you know, sometimes I despair. Like I, I know I've had conversations with with Dan Shaughnessy, for example, and 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 Dan will say, you know, nobody nobody values good writing anymore. And then I'll go on the net and I'll read uh, guys like uh, Chuck Culpepper or or Adam Kilgore, or Dave Shinen at at the Washington Post, with three guys that I insist you get to know this summer. Uh, when you're uh, interning at the Washington Post, or or reading Bruce Jenkins or Ray Ratto in the Bay Area, or uh, Baxter Holmes at ESPN, or Wright Thompson at ESPN, and and it seems like there's almost an embarrassment of riches uh, in in terms of of great writing. I you know I know that that some of the and I know chronologically I probably qualify as a curmudgeon now, but uh, I know some of my fellow curmudgeons you know, kind of uh, look down on the new generation. I'm telling you what, I, I see some amazing talent, uh, amazing young talent, and, and I celebrate it. I, I, you know, it's, 
there's a part of me that feels, yeah, you know what, Corey, it, it was a, it was time for you to step aside and let some of these other folks uh, uh, step up and 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 get to do some of the things uh, I got to do. So we'll get back to Gordon in just one second. First, a word from our friends over at SeatGeek. One of the most frustrating things in general is finding the best value for tickets to sports games and concerts. And the place that I go to, and the only place that I go to, is SeatGeek. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets for a Yankee game that uh, that I wanted to go to in New York City and didn't end up going to. But SeatGeek has taken out all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss deal. And you can even set alerts for upcoming games, and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to view this view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the ticket price, and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek will show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprise you and jack up the price with huge fees at checkout. Listeners to Doing It For Bartolo can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase, and in order to do that, make sure to download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code, enter the promo code Bartolo, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So in order to claim the $20 rebate, make sure to download the free seat app and enter the promo code Bartolo today and make sure to head out and support SeatGeek because they're supporting the show and making the show possible for uh, me and the Hardball Times and everybody who's listening to the show and hope you hope you guys enjoy using SeatGeek as well. Uh, now back to Gordon. So I think it's kind of interesting when you look at it that way because... I think there is just a wealth of really, really great internet writing now, or just writing in general, and it's so much more accessible than it used to be. Even when I was in elementary school and kind of the only place I was getting my sports writing was from the Globe and the Herald and all the local papers, and now I can read anybody from anywhere, which is which is so great. Um, but, I mean, an issue that I kind of take with uh, the quote-unquote old curmudgeon view is that Yes, the barrier for entry to getting your writing seen on the internet is much lower, but it also means that the barrier to criticism is also a lot is a lot lower as well. Meaning that you know anybody on the internet can can criticize practically anyone else, and so if you have bad writing on the internet, you're going to hear that it's bad from from people. Well, you can write well, and you're still going to hear that it's bad on the internet. Uh, you know, if 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 there was one. <laughs> Believe me, June, and and you know when they when they tell people you know you don't read the comments. Uh, generally, that's very good advice. Um, we're all human, so we we generally ignore that advice and 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 look at some of the comments and and that's where the bar has been lowered so dramatically. I think um, you know I got my share of of letters written in crayon. Uh, when I was at a newspaper, you know, from people wanting to take issue with stuff I wrote. Uh, but now, uh, and, and it's obviously not uh, uh, exclusive to sports by any means, um, the nature of the, of the discourse that's carried on in, in, in social media, and particularly in comment section, is, is really discouraging to me. And, and, and I hope one of you... Uh, you know, new innovators come up with a way to, to uh, address that and, and somehow make it a more civil uh, discussion. I don't know how you do that. I know one thing that ESPN uh, requires now is that you, if you're going to leave a comment, you have to sign in, I believe, with your Facebook account. 
Um, I don't know if that's necessarily raised the bar on on the on the quality of comments. And and hey, I you know I understand you know I'm I'm not uh, I don't need just attaboys. Uh, I I welcome uh, people uh, who have dissenting opinions or or uh, disagree with with. Uh, you know, even don't even like the way a story was put together, or whatever. I'm, I'm fine with that. I just wish it, those uh, comments were 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 couched in in far different terms than you find on the net. So, what's your solution, June? Tell me. I mean, I'm, I, I'm all ears. I mean, I don't really know per se because I'm not I'm not someone who, <laughs> who who who's like constantly thinking about that kind of thing. But I also think that within the comment section, it's very much set up within the constraints of the community that's already commenting. Like, if you go to a website like Deadspin, I think Deadspin's comment section is, is wildly entertaining and generally not super hateful and cynical compared to the rest of the comment sections on the internet in that a lot of it is just a lot of funny jokes, and it's kind of the way that that community has built itself up. If you go to a lot of SB Nation sites, like Over the Monster, I think Over the Monster is very much... Uh, at least compared to the rest of the internet, is very much sabermetrically minded, and there's kind of a, a community there where people try to learn from one another. And so I think, yes, there's a lot of crap in comment sections across the internet as a whole, but I think a lot of that is kind of, you kind of have to judge it on a site-to-site basis. And uh, when when a lot of those comments come via Twitter, which I don't think sets up a very, uh, you know, uh, a, a very positive atmosphere for, for commenting, I think it's, Twitter in general is kind of cynical. Uh, I think I think a lot of it is just kind of based on the the communities that have been set up and the and the kind of the the unwritten guideline guidelines that come with each community. Hold on one second here, June. I hope you're able to edit. Are you yeah. able to edit? Yeah, okay, no hold on. Yeah, I had to respond to this. Okay. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's. I would agree that that the the, the default mechanism uh, on in comment sections tends to be cynicism and tends to be snark, um, and and maybe we just have to accept that as part of the landscape for now. Uh, maybe uh, maybe the discourse one day in our lifetime, or certainly your lifetime, will be elevated, okay? <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what, I mean, you've had, you, had a, you had a really, really long journalism career, and uh, you left college early in order to pursue journalism. You didn't graduate, right? I know. Shame on me, huh, June? I had, I had uh, two classes left at, at uh, I was going to school at, at North Park College in Chicago. It's a small uh, liberal arts denominational school uh, in Chicago. Uh, it's now North Park University. And uh, I was closing in on graduation, and I'd gone to the uh, sports editor at the Tribune. I, I was working there as, as, a, as a copy boy, copy clerk, uh, the guys who answered the phones in the newsroom of the sports department and, and uh, ran errands for the reporters and the desk guys and uh, did a variety of tasks. And, and I said to him, uh, uh, I'd like to apply for an internship. And he said, well, I think I could do better than that for you. How about a job? So uh, uh, what I did is uh, they gave me a, a, a three-month tryout on the copy desk in, in the newsroom. And 
at the time the 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 typical tryout would would only be for two weeks because it usually was for a experienced copy editor applying from outside the the newspaper. But in my case, uh, uh, they gave me three months, which which I kind of took as you know what we're giving you every chance here to succeed. Uh, and at the end of those three months, they offered me a job as a copy editor in the newsroom. And I'll never forget, I went in to see an editor named Joe Leonard. I had no idea, June, what uh, uh, professional journalists made, right? So all I knew, I, I was making 9500 bucks a year as a, as a copy boy. And I came in there, and Joe Leonard said, uh, we're hiring you. We're gonna, you're going to be a copy editor, and we're starting you at 19000 a year. And I thought, my God, I've just doubled my salary. I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, uh, it was that. That was my start, and 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 eventually, uh, after working in the newsroom uh, for the better part of a year, I believe, uh, I I moved up to sports and and also worked on the copy desk and. Uh, I'm, my opportunities to write, I did a lot of rewrite on the desk, but I also, um, you know, when stories would fall through the cracks uh, between beats or whatever, I would volunteer to write and and uh, got a number of clips that way. And uh, uh, in 1980, a, a former assistant sports editor at, at the Chicago Tribune named Dave Moylan had moved on to the LA Times, and he reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking for... Uh, a hockey writer slash desk guy, uh, would you be interested? And uh, I applied. And frankly, June, I think they were more interested in me as a as a copy editor than a hockey writer. I don't think uh, uh, I know that hockey at that time wasn't a major priority at the L.A. Times. Um, and I think they had visions of you know me starting the season on the beat, and then once the Kings fell out of contention, I'd I'd be working more desk shifts than than writing, but. It, it was my great fortune that the Kings started out 10-1-1 that year, uh, had the best overall record in the league through February, and, and actually uh, advanced to the playoffs. So it was, it was a great break. They had to leave me on the beat. So uh, uh, it was a cool thing. And then the second year, uh, I got to cover what I still regard as one of the, the great sports events uh, of my career in 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 LA among hockey fans it's known as the miracle on Manchester uh the kings had been the 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 worst qualifiers for the playoffs in the league i think they finished 16th place overall and they were playing uh edmonton uh which was gretzky just coming into his glory and surrounded by tremendous talent you know messier coffee and glenn anderson grant fuhr uh, and they were supposed to make fast work of of the Kings, and they were well on their way to doing so. Um, and uh, I think they, I believe that they had a two games to one lead, and then were ahead of the uh, Kings five nothing after two periods uh, in the uh, at home in the LA Forum. And Jerry Buss on the team at the time, and and Buss lit, left uh, to Palm Springs with. He had Kathy Lee Crosby with him. And uh, afterwards, he said, oh, you know, I was listening to the game, and, and uh, I, I knew they were going to win, but only if I went on to Palm Springs. And I wrote, yeah, right, Jerry. You know, But in, in any event, the Kings scored five goals, 
uh, in the third period, tied the game with five seconds left, and then won in overtime, and then in, then ultimately eliminated uh, Edmonton. And I think uh, after that season, Edmonton won at least four straight Stanley Cups. But it was it was just such a, a an incredible uh, a game and an, an incredibly improbable outcome. And and one of my favorite stories that I ever did was the day after, you know, putting together anecdotally all, all the things that surrounded uh, that comeback uh, was a lot of fun. What were some of the, the early mistakes that you made while kind of learning the ropes on, on the beat and how to be a beat writer? Oh, my God. Uh, I would think in, in, in retrospect, when I, when I look back, um, the year I covered the, I covered the LA Rams in, in 1982, which was a, uh, a tumultuous season uh, for the Rams. They, they had made a big trade for Burt Jones, uh, who was a highly regarded quarterback. And, and then at the same time, they uh, re-signed Vince Ferragamo, who had led them to a Super Bowl a couple years earlier and had been playing in Canada. And they brought him back. So that, that kind of split the team right from the beginning. Georgia Frontieri uh, was the highly controversial owner of the team. Um, and I remember doing a long investigative piece on all the problems that and internal battles that were going on uh, within the organization. And when I look back at that story, you know, I kick myself for having relied as much as I did on unnamed sources. Um, I, I I think. You know, I understand more fully now how uh, obviously there are times you you need to do so. I mean, there's no question. Uh, you know, people need to protect their anonymity. They'll talk to you uh, off the record, uh, on background, but only with assurances that, that their names will not surface in your stories. I mean, most of the people listening to this podcast know that. But I think in this instance, I, I rely too much on maybe the the uh, anti-frontieri uh, forces, you know, the people who who might have had a pretty significant axe to grind. And, and, and in my story, you know, characterize that more as this is the way it is rather than qualified it is. You know, this is the view of the people who, you know, have so much contempt for uh, current ownership. I, I remember that kind of mistake. Um, you know, it's it's a good question to to reflect on things that you did wrong. Um, I think you know it was a little bit of an eye opener for me uh, when I came to Boston, and and when you think about it, by that time um, I was you know 17 years into my career, but uh, I learned that in Boston they had a much more aggressive style of of covering a beat um, than we did, say, on the West Coast. I mean, obviously, I, I was still very competitive in the West Coast and, and broke more than my share of stories. But um, in terms of the everydayness of covering a beat, um, you know, like the LA Times, uh, I, I used to say that that they cared much more about the French pastry, you know, the long features, than the than the day to day beat work. Uh, and in Boston, you know, the, the emphasis was, you know, being there at every practice and writing notebooks every day and doing this and this and this. And, and that wasn't quite 
the way I had approached um, the beat in in uh, in L.A. Uh, so that you know that one thing I I suppose that I would have been I I think I understood more fully. Uh, and it's something that Don Squire used to say when the former sports editor of the Globe, you know, you can't cover something unless you're there, you know? So, I mean, that sounds so simple, but it's true. And, and uh, you know, being around matters, and it matters a lot. And, uh, again, I, I don't berate myself for, for not having been around. I, I you know, I, I, I think I did a pretty good job. Of, of of covering the beats I covered, but I realized you could take it to another level um, at the Globe when I arrived at the Globe. And you know, when I when I look back on on one of the more, uh, for lack of a better term, celebrated um, uh, story that I covered, and the whole thing, the whole controversy with Carl Everett, um, there are things I would do differently. I think. Um, I think that there might have been a bit of a rush to judgment on my part about Everett, um, that some of the stuff that I wrote, I should have more aggressively presented to him and given him a chance to respond to some of it, um, Wait, you let's know, let's I, let's reset for a second. So, for for audience members who don't know what the Carl Everett story is, could you take us back to kind of the origins of everything that happened and what led up to that confrontation in the clubhouse? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I mean the the I I think the 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 kindling, of course, was when when Everett threw a nutty in in the dugout uh, and had bumped umpire. Well, actually, yeah, it, it started at home plate, and he, and he bumped umpire uh, Ron Kulpa at the plate, and, and then he went back to the dugout and swung his bat violently, nearly hit Brett Saberhagen, uh, wound up getting suspended 10 games and all. And, and uh, uh, I reported um, about uh, some of the volatile things that had occurred in, in – Everett's career up to that point, uh, including a, a confrontation he had with a uh, flight attendant uh, on a on a team flight um, that had, that had gotten really ugly and and that had caused uh, you know other people on that team to feel uh, uh, a great deal of dislike toward Carl, and you know there was an ongoing battle that that he had. Uh, with the manager, Jimmy Williams, that uh, ultimately culminated uh, uh, with him uh, going off when he wasn't on the lineup card, and then uh, Carl, uh, Carl Lewis, uh, Darren Lewis, uh, the, the team's other center fielder, uh, confronted Everett in the, in the clubhouse, and uh, the, the fight had to be broken up by, I, I believe Jim Rice was one of the uh, people who broke it up, and maybe Tommy Harper was the other. Um, and uh, me approaching Carl uh, subsequent to that day, and and him blowing up at at me and and saying, uh, you know, bye, globe, bye, you know, uh, you and your curly curly haired boyfriend, which was a reference to uh, to Shaughnessy. Uh, uh, so it, it, you know it. it you never want to see things disintegrate 
to that level uh, when you're covering someone. Uh, I mean, does it happen? Sure. Uh, I remember Cesar Cedeno uh, in, in probably the most threatening uh, uh, incident I, I had in my career. And it didn't help to know that, you know, Cesar Cedeno at one point in, in his career had been charged with manslaughter in, in the Dominican uh, in connection with the death of an 18-year-old woman. But uh, he was at the very end of his career with the Dodgers. And uh, I had speculated that he was playing terribly. I mean, he was clearly washed up. And I was speculating that when the, the Dodgers made a roster move, they probably were going to let Cedeno uh, go. And uh, uh, we were in Pittsburgh and the, and the Dodgers had just won big, like 18 to four. And it was a very happy clubhouse. And I remember walking back and forth uh, through the clubhouse, talking to various uh, players and, and suddenly got stopped in the middle of the clubhouse by Cesar Cedeno, uh, a very angry Cesar Cedeno saying, uh, I want to talk to you and I want to talk to you now. And uh, he proceeded to uh, uh, get very animated and very angry. And he said, I'm, I'm sick of you blaming me for, for everything that's going on here. And, you know, name, name one player that's playing well. And, and I said, well, you know, Fernando's on his way to winning 20 games and Sachs is hitting over 300 or whatever. And uh, obviously that didn't uh, calm him down any. And, and the next thing I know, Pedro Guerrero was on the other side of me and 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 joining in and and uh, uh, and and I said to to Pedro who was a star on that team at at the time I said you know what's your issue I said I, I've written thousands of words about you most of them favorable you know you know in so many words I said what's your dog in this hunt you know and and I remember Lasorda coming out of his office and and just watching. Um, uh, it would have been nice if Tommy had uh, stepped up and said, hey, you know, knock it off. But maybe the entertainment value of the confrontation uh, was something he didn't want to uh, to mess with. But ultimately, Billy Delury, who was weighed about 115 pounds and was the team's uh, traveling secretary, and Manny Mota uh, broke it up. But that's probably as, as close as I've ever felt to to being in some physical uh danger <laughs> while doing my job. I've had plenty of people yell at me and, and uh, I mean, that comes with the territory, but in Carl's case, and the reason I say there, there may be things some that I wish I'd, I'd done differently. Um, you know, he had a very, he, he's a very complicated guy and, and he had a very, very complicated and difficult, uh, upbringing and in Tampa. And I think, I may have lost sight of his humanity in the midst of all of that, and I regret that. Could you, I mean, could you kind of expound on that? Like, I mean, how 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 were you feeling when you coming out of that that incident? How has that view of it of the whole ordeal changed? You know, twenty years down the line. Yeah, and and I and, and I just think it it's it's more uh, more a sense of of. Okay, this is a volatile guy. He's a troubled guy. You know all of this stuff. Um, you know, did some of your coverage of this cross over into cheap shotting or or taking easy shots? And you know, I've always prided myself on uh, 
being fair. You know, I, I, you know, when people say you're objective, you know, you're objective. Well, you know what? I, I think, I think objectivity is, 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 is not, uh, a, a, a truly, um, attainable, uh, state that, you know, we all see things through our own prism, you know, so, so it's necessarily subjective. Um, so then, if if that is indeed the case, then what I for me then what what you aspire to is is being as fair as possible, um, and even even that even that judgment is is subjective to a to to an extent certainly. But um, I just wonder if there were times that that I lost sight of my own. Um, the criteria that I consider the most important and, and, and that's fairness and, and, and refraining from, from, from the easy way out and, and taking some cheap shots where maybe they weren't, weren't necessary. Have you ever had a chance to, to talk to him uh, about that? No. And you know, I, I would welcome that. Um, and it's funny, you know, oftentimes when a player is done with, with their career, uh, they're in a very different place. Um, when they were playing and are more open to that kind of conversation. I'm not sure that Carl ever would with me, but, uh, if the opportunity presented itself, I'd, I'd love to sit down with him and talk. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're the Red Sox historian now. You, I bet you have access to, to, to be able to talk to him about that. Possibly, you know, it, it's funny. I actually, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that June, because I actually tried to track, uh, in our, our in our files, we don't have a forwarding number or an address or an email address for him right now. But uh, you know, I I was uh, doing some searching of my own, and and I know he he was involved with another uh, uh, criminal charge uh, down in Tampa. I think it, it was a domestic violence charge, and and I couldn't even. Uh, find how the ultimate resolution of that uh and in fact i even reached out to the uh arresting police department and and didn't get any answers so uh it may take some work on my part but uh hold me to that one june you know <laughs> that, that hey you said you wanted to talk to kyle everett are you really making an effort to do so uh you know maybe the, uh, it, it would be nice to think that maybe that chance will present itself so something I think is interesting that you kind of touched on earlier, and obviously Boston's kind of a, a volatile media market, but you said that there, there's a there's a different type of competition within the, the Boston media market, and having grown up here and having spent most of your career here, um, how 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 is Boston different in terms of uh, in terms of covering the team than than other media markets? Well, for one thing, it's. I mean, I I was going to say that there are so many more outlets, but when I started covering the Dodgers for the Times, there were actually nine newspapers uh, that traveled with the club. So that's not a whole lot different um, than than what you encounter in Boston, um, in, at least in terms of media that that travel with the team. Maybe the number here is actually even a little less now than than what I encountered in, in LA, but, um, certainly with the Red Sox, you know, there, there, there's an intensity, 
of coverage. Um, there's there's a ton of constant analysis. The, I, I I suppose the biggest difference in, for me is is the um, influence that uh, sports talk has in this market compared to other markets I've worked in. Um, you know, for a while, I, I think you could say that that EEI uh, was setting the agenda a lot of times in, in terms of, of what was being uh, discussed in town on, on the in, in sports. I mean, clearly, you know, Sports Hub has has emerged as a a formidable candidate, uh, 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 rival, and and maybe even a dominant rival. You know, between Maz and Falger. Uh, and the hold they have on the on the afternoon audience, um, but uh, you know the, the thing about sports talk, and and I need, need when I when I'm listening to it, I have to remind myself, you know, that their mission is a little different than than those of us who are reporting on the team on a daily basis. You know, a, a big part of their uh, mission is to entertain. So they'll deliberately say stuff that's outrageous or or provocative or controversial, with little regard to what's actually uh, the truth. Uh, they'll admit it. You know, they'll admit it privately at least that that uh, that's part of what drives them. And uh, uh, I think it's the fact that that uh, the the media here is so competitive and is so judgmental uh, in a lot of ways has really uh, created uh, a much different atmosphere in the clubhouse than, say, uh, I knew, certainly different from when I covered an expansion team in Florida, the Florida Marlins, uh, you know, they, the, the, you know the, a lot of those players were just happy to be in the big league, so there wasn't uh, a lot of... Uh, hostility toward the media um and you know in la you know of, of course there were there were issues i mean i covered the whole steve howe uh, you know cocaine crisis when he was with the dodgers even drove to his house once uh when he didn't show up at the ballpark uh which was a trip <laughs> to say the least uh and you know what what kills me june is that Honest to God, he was—he came out of the house. He was prepared to talk to me. I had a relationship with him, and then some guy from, you know, some guy from one of the suburban LA papers had been parked out out near the house, and the guy was had been gutless. He wasn't going to approach the house by himself. But when he saw me go toward the house, he get, he gets out of his car and starts coming walking toward us. And when How saw that. Um, he he turned around and went back in the house. See how unforgiving I am, June. God, that <laughs> happened like twenty-seven years ago, and I'm still bitching about it today. <laughs> I think the idea of I think the idea of competition in journalism is something that's kind of unseen, though. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's what June? I'm sorry. I, I think I think the idea of competition in, in general, in kind of beat writing in journalism, is 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 a lot unseen to the consumer. Like I feel like. I feel I feel like media members are are uh, are much more stubborn and are 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 much more aware of of this kind of stuff going on that is completely unaware to the reader. Huh, that's interesting because uh, I know the I know the negative perception of 
media coverage is is, is when you hear like Felger and Nash talk about the lodge. Like we're all in the DBWA members are all in lockstep with each other, and that there isn't any uh, competition, and that that we just operate in a pack. And I think nothing could be further than the truth. You know, obviously post game, uh, you're going to see uh, multiple reporters surrounding a, a particular player after a game, of uh, of course. But I, I challenge you after after a lot of games. Uh, you know, go look at the coverage the next day. You're going to see uh, an, a variety of perspectives and, and people looking for a different angle um, than the guy that may be sitting next to him in the press box. Um, I, I think it's it still is a, a, a very competitive uh, environment. You're you're looking for ways to separate yourself from the pack. Mm-hmm. Uh- how did you kind of deal with that competition? Um, whether that's like kind of reading through your competitors in the morning or, I mean, what is, what is that competition like in, in the press box on a, on a baseball beat? You mean besides, uh, you know, pouring arsenic on, in, in guys' coffee uh, that <laughs> were sitting next to me? Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. Um, I've always felt that you can be competitive and still maintain uh, a good rapport with with your competitors. Um, I don't think that's always the the case in in Boston. I, I think there there are some reporters who um, just never going to view you as anything but a competitor, and that's fine. You know, I I accept that. That that's okay. Um, you know the the thing is, and particularly when you cover a, a a a beat that's nine months long, like ours is, and requires us so much everydayness and so much travel and all that. You know that there is you you, you share a, a you share the similar, for lack of a better word, hardships. You know, like I, I was feeling for those poor guys, uh, and and you know, uh, I think. Uh, uh, Jen McCaffrey was in Houston also, but I mean, think about it. They heard a five-hour game Sunday night in Houston and all had to catch early flights the next morning to go to Atlanta and cover a game last night. Uh, that's not easy, you know? I mean, at least the team leave, leaves right after the game. Uh, yes, they got to the hotel probably at 6 in the morning, but they could sleep for six, seven hours anyway. You know, the reporters had no such luxury they probably had two, three hours of sleep and went and went to the airport and and then were on their way. Um, so so in 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 some ways those shared experiences should create a bond, and I think uh, to a certain extent they do, but um, uh, not for everyone. And and I think you you hear some sniping back and forth. It's it's inevitable. Uh, uh, when when people are together that much and and uh, you know I I know that that I had my issues with with the way some people went about their business I I thought they they may have gotten you know too close to to uh, players or and all that and and kind of blurred the lines of of of, of being a journalist and and being a player but um, you know the at the and at the same time, I'm I'm sure I'm 
Uh, I'm sure there was some eye rolling in, in sessions where at some of my questions or whatever. So it goes on, you know, but, uh, uh, I know that I had, uh, great respect for, for the vast majority of people that, that have shared beats with me. Uh, and, and, and again, I want to reiterate that I see in, in some of the young talent, um, that's emerging in the business. Uh, you know, I, I have tremendous respect. I, I, I'll cite the two young guys of Providence, uh, Tim Britton and, and Brian McPherson as, as, as two guys who've, who, who've really enriched our beat, uh, since I came on there. I think the baseball beat, being a baseball beat writer in general is, uh, is, is a very arduous thing to do. And, uh, you know, you're traveling with the team every single day, and it's it's tough. It's a grind. You're, I mean, you're going through a similar type of grind as you are as the players are. Um, how did you kind of deal with that? All the travel and and dealing with you know family and friends and personal life and all that stuff at the same time. Yeah, with you know, without uh, encroaching too much on my personal privacy, I I would say that I probably didn't handle it very well. You know that that it took its toll on, on, on relationships. And, and, um, you know, I certainly have some regrets about that. And, and, um, I've seen a number of people pay pretty high price for our, for our lifestyle. And, um, and, and that's, I'm certain that that's one thing that, that a lot of people aren't, uh, aren't cognizant of when, the, when they look at our job. I mean, I've heard many, many times, you know, oh, my God, how lucky you are uh, to cover the Boston Red Sox or cover the L.A. Lakers or cover the Florida Marlins. And, and yeah, I would say that's right. I, I have been, I, I, I feel like I've, I've been very fortunate professionally, uh, and I've loved my job. And, and yet I think that, um, I sacrifice the balance that, that you need to have a more well-rounded life. And, and I think I I see in, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I think I see in the, in the new generation, uh, a, a greater determination to, find that balance and and that's a good thing it really is you obviously spent a lot of time writing with baseball and covering the red Sox, uh and you were with espn for a while after you left the globe um what was it that finally pushed you to make the jump off off of journalism and and into this this role with the red Sox? you know it's funny june it's not something that i was uh necessarily planning uh, particularly at this point in my career, I'm, I had had general and casual conversations with folks about maybe one day uh, being a historian here, something I w- would love to do, et cetera. Um, but I had negotiated uh, another deal with ESPN. I, I, I had a, a, a deal for another three years. Um, so I, it was... I wasn't at a point where I had said enough, you know, I can't do this anymore. You know, I've had it, I'm tired or whatever. But, uh, when this opportunity materialized in a, in a more concrete way and in a more expanded way, and some of the projects that may be 
a part of it. Um, you know, I, I, I did embrace that opportunity. So, um, I, I think there was a part of me that, that expected to, uh, be like Jim Murray, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, uh, you keep writing until, uh, your mortal coil expires. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jim, Jim was still writing when, 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 you know, it, right up until his death, you know, and there've been a number of people like that. I mean, look at Vinny, Vin Scully, you know, what is he, 88 and still doing it? And, <laughs> Something and, like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always imagined that I would continue uh, writing uh, as long as my health allowed me to. But I will say that, you know, I, I, definitely a factor in in making the decision I did was was – uh, knowing that it that would have a, a, a huge impact on lifestyle, that you know I wouldn't be traveling as much, in particular, uh, uh, and because when you cover the baseball beat, it's not only that you're gone two weeks out of every month, it's also that when you're home, they're playing at night, <laughs> so you're not home when they're home either, you know. So, so uh, uh, you know, the, having the opportunity to 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 have a different lifestyle definitely played into my decision how have your role how have your relationships uh with the people in the front office and the players cha- uh, changed since you stepped into this role because obviously you, you were a reporter for a very long time and um the relationship between reporters and, and front office people is is one you kind of tiptoe around whereas you're now working for the team has there been kind of a transition period between how how people treat you and and seeing you as a member of the Red Sox rather than as a member of like them the media. Yeah. Well, I thought alarms would be going off all over this place, you know, when I was walking down hallways and stuff, you know, that intruder, 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 you know, but uh, uh that hasn't been the case. Uh I actually made a conscious effort during spring training to maybe spend less time in the clubhouse um, than I ordinarily would because I wanted, um, I felt if I was in the clubhouse all the time that, that it would confuse the issue that the players would think of me still as a reporter and all. And um, I think it, uh, I think generally like I had one player and when we were in Montreal, um, I was having breakfast in the, in the hotel uh, coffee shop and he sat down next to me and said, uh, Hey, now that you're not on the dark side, do you mind if I join you for breakfast? So (laughs) (laughs) there have been a few of those experiences and, and, and the front office has, you know, I, it, it, it's definitely been to my advantage that, that I had a prior uh, relationship with Dave Dombrowski. I covered him in, in when he was GM of the Florida. So, uh, of the Marlins, so that the Floridas, yeah, of the Marlins. So um, uh, there's a comfort level. There was a comfort level already there, and and uh, you know he's been he's 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 treated me great, and you know the ownership certainly has been far more forthcoming than they would have been back back when I was reporting, you know. Uh, so. Uh, obviously, uh, there there's been a big change uh, there, and and uh, I, I think I think maybe more with, with I think with maybe some of the players there's still a you know a, a feeling out period here, but but uh, 
generally, it's been very positive. How how do you kind of envision this role uh, for you over the next couple of years? Uh, good question. Um, I, I certainly, you know, one of the things that, uh, oh, and one of the cool things I've gotten to do, and you, and you feel like you're, you know, you're going to be part of the permanent uh, furniture here is, is uh, we're inducting a, Four new members of the, the Red Sox Hall of Fame next month. Uh, Jason Vertek, uh, Tim Wakefield, Ira uh, Flagstead, and, and Larry Lucchino. And uh, I think Dr. Charles might have written Larry's, but I wrote the, uh, the text on, on all three plaques uh, that are going to be uh, placed in, in Fenway Park in, in the EMC Club. And, and some of our historical displays, I've written the plaques. And, and you kind of say, hey, you know what? I'm I'm doing something that's going to last. Where whereas you know when you're working for a newspaper or or a website, you know, <laughs> that's uh, it used to be fish wrapping and and now it just what goes into you know you hit the delete button. Uh, so it, it's a little thing, but it, it's kind of a satisfying thing to feel that 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 you may leave uh, even in your in a very small way a, a permanent mark. Um, I hope. That um, I I, cre- uh, I I contribute uh, to creating a, a much greater inventory of historical uh, material on the Red Sox. I mean, Lord knows, uh, you know, there have probably been more books written about the Red Sox than just about any team uh, in, in sports. So so there's a lot of rich history. We already have, but but I think there 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 are gaps that I can fill. There 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 are ways that I can enhance the understanding of of, of some of our history, um, and and I'm real eager. I know that I know that uh, John Henry has some projects in mind for me that that might might really um, capture the public imagination if, if they come to pass. I I wish I could offer more detail at this point, but I can't. But um, uh, you know, certainly, um, I can contribute to to an understanding of the history of this club in the last twenty years since since I was here for most of it. How is it? You know, if you if you look in inside and go back to like the the, the inner child of, of Gordon Eads and and uh, <laughs> and and the, the little kid growing up in, in Massachusetts, and if you were to say like, "Hey, I'm the historian of the Red Sox now," what do you think his reaction would be? Um, I think that there he'd be saying, "You got to be kidding me! Uh, uh, never, never, uh, never imagined such a thing." And the one thing that kind of amuses me, June, is the uh, the reaction I've gotten from from a lot of friends and family to getting this job. It's almost like they they couch it in terms of, "Hey, congratulations! You you finally made it!" And I'm going. Wait a second, you know, that uh, those thirty-five years I spent as <laughs> as a sports writer weren't, weren't exactly a waste of time, you know. I mean, I'm I couldn't imagine, I couldn't conceive of of doing this job without first having uh, been a reporter. Uh, to me, that that was an unbelievable privilege and and a mind-blowing thing to me in a lot of ways that that the people would would care to, to read the words of a guy from Lunenburg, Massachusetts, uh, uh, and, and, and find, 
information and find, you know, that one guy, I, I think I might have even told you this at one point, uh, June. One one thing that stuck with me uh, from some, was something that someone said to me very early in my career that, that when he sits down to write a story, that there are two things uh, that, are, that are foremost in his mind. One is to inform and the other is to delight. And I just always love that expression. And, and, and it's always driven me to, you know, not just write, uh, to push myself to write in the, in, in the best possible prose that I'm capable of, 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 of creating. That, that I always strive to, to, to write in, in such a way that somebody picking up my story might be delighted. Mm-hmm. Do you miss being a reporter? <laughs> Um, like I said, not too much right now. <laughs> you know, I, I gotta say like when the whole David Price thing was going on, uh, in, you know, I didn't mind getting an, an email from ownership saying, Hey, we're flying down to Nashville on Thursday night to meet with David and, um, his agent and, and Sam Kennedy will be there and Dave Dombrowski will be there and John Farrell will be there. Um, uh, that would have been the kind of stuff I'd have been knocking myself out as a reporter to, to try to discover. And, and then a few days later to walk down the hallway and stick my head into Dave's office and ask him where things stood and getting an answer. Um, that's kind of cool. It's kind of cool to be on, on this side. I, I got to admit. Um, is there uh, anything that I didn't ask you about that, that you wish I would have asked you about? Not that, not that jumps to mind, uh, June. I hope I wasn't too uh, rambling uh, for you here. No, it was All great. Right. It was great. Dude. All right. Take care, man. Thank you. Have a good one, Gordon. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is just Well, that was Gordon Eats. Thanks again to Gordo for coming on the show, and I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Uh, Gordo's a, a really great guy, and I uh, hope you guys kind of got a sense of that. And he, he has a lot of great stories about his time in journalism, so I hope you guys enjoyed that as well. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, please make, sh- uh, make sure to head over to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, leave us leave us a, a nice rating. It would uh, be really, really appreciated and help, uh, help other people find the show as well. Uh, make sure to tell a friend. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes. And uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Bartolopod. You can follow me on Twitter at IamJunely. You can follow Gordon on Twitter at GordonEads. And I think that just about wraps it up. Uh, not sure who's on the show ne- again next week, uh, but I'm pretty confident that we'll have a guest. Uh, so you'll find that out uh, next Wednesday on Doing It For Bartolo. But until next time... Uh, hope you guys have a good one. Uh, see you later.